Good Tuesday afternoon. I hope it doesn't feel like a Monday for you. I hope I hope you're not having a Monday, but it is Tuesday. And I hope you had a good three-day weekend if it was one for you. Uh, I have to say, we got to give credit where credit is due. Joe Biden was a soundbite machine this weekend. He did not take the weekend off from being gaftastic. He made sure to keep them coming, you know? I mean, I guess probably, uh, you know, he's trying to, you know, as we ramp up for an election year and he's 80, you know, he's trying to show people, I can keep up, I can put my foot in my mouth fluidly, flexibly, frequently, I can do it on Saturdays, I can do it on Sundays, I can do it on holiday weekends, I can do it when I'm at the beach, Sunday he was uh, in Delaware, and he saw some reporters waiting for him outside the uh, church. And you know, he's been avoiding the press lately, and he probably should have avoided them in this instance. Here he is explaining that he doesn't have a home to go to. Cut number five. The reason I'm here today, just for one day, I know I'm on vacation. I'm not. I have no home to go to. The Secret Service has torn my house up in a good way to make it secure. So I have no place to go when I come to Delaware except here right now. I'm only here for one day. Are you homeless? No, I'm not homeless. I just have one home, my beautiful home. But I, I'm down here for the day because I can't go home. Why are you? Why are you explaining this? Why? Why? Why are you talking about this? And by the way, Secret Service tore my home up, but in a good way. Um, I guess I figure they are just—they are probably sensitive to and getting the the blowback about how he spent like 25 out of 30 days on vacation. Because why? Why would you? Why would you be talking about that? Um, and I, I just—I I, you know—he just kept him coming. Uh, reporters asked him about uh, whether he was going to go to East Palestine, Ohio. I will give him credit for remembering that there was an East Palestine, Ohio. I mean, that was like six months ago that the train derailed and devastated the community with the chemical spill and then the fireball. Uh, Here is the president's, uh, the dog ate my homework excuse on not going there, cut number seven. I said in March that you would go to East Palestine, Ohio. You came here. How come you haven't gone to East Palestine yet? Well, I haven't had the occasion to go to East Palestine. There's a lot going on here, and I just haven't been able to break. I was thinking whether I'd go to East Palestine this week, but I then was reminded I've got to go literally around the world. I'm going from uh, from Washington to India to Vietnam, to, and so I, it's going to be a while. But uh, we're making sure that East Palestine has what they need materially yeah. In order to deal with their problems with their problems whatever happened there did he don did he say wild or a while you played with I'm the going sound from, a little bit uh from washington to india to vietnam to and so i it's going to be wild so i can't tell if he's saying it's going to be wild like wild man i'm on my world tour like, I don't think that's comforting to know that if you're an American and your town was wiped out, your president's too busy going to Vietnam and, you know, India or wherever he said he was going. 
It's going to um, be wild. It's going to be wild? <laughs> I always said it's going to be a while. Um, obviously, I don't know if he's even going on that trip now because you heard the news today that the First Lady is tested positive for COVID-19, and she is in their house that the Secret Service didn't tear up to make better in uh, Delaware. So he is being tested and so far has tested negative, and we hope he stays negative. But I don't know. I don't even know at this point. I mean, like, are you, if you are married to somebody with COVID, are you supposed to be flying places or are you supposed to like isolate or lay low? Or I think I would probably not take a trip that would put me in contact with a lot of people in close quarters. But that's, you know, that's just me. Um, they weren't buying it, by the way. Fox News uh, talked to people in East Palestine and they were not happy about. Um, what they heard from the president. At this point, I don't even care if he comes, said resident Jamie Wallace. We're here, we're sick, we do have unmet needs. Another resident says she's living in a hotel with her children. Courtney Miller says uh, they've been in a hotel ever since the derailment. Now remember, that was like seven months ago. She said, I don't want to take my kids into something that's obvious that obviously Biden doesn't want to even show up for. I, I really wonder um, if the reason he didn't go is not lack of compassion as much as it's that they may have told him, we don't really know what the health situation is there. I know that, I know uh, Buttigieg went and some other federal people have gone and obviously the governor of Ohio has been there. And, and let's face it, the people who went had to go. They just had to go. But I'm I'm kind of wondering. I know a lot of people that don't like Biden want to assume that he's just cold-hearted or puts Americans last. And I and, and I'm not saying you're wrong because that could be true. There's ample evidence of that. But I've always kind of wondered if they've maybe not really told us the whole story, but just how toxic Palestine is or was. Like maybe that's why he didn't go right away. And then at this point, they're saying, well, if he didn't go right away, there's no value in going now just to get yelled at it it also may be and again i'm not trying to avoid the obvious answer which was he doesn't give a bleep but it may also be and forgive me for saying this that ohio now kind of looks like a republican state that that that's you know there's probably no and in that part of ohio there's certainly that's like you know oliver anthony country so i i have to think that it's a combination of either toxicity or they just don't, you know, think at this point that those are, those are lost voters to them. Those people already hate him. They're not going to vote for him. The um, So he's been to Maui. He's been to the hurricane uh, damage in Florida. Uh, by the way, the number of people unaccounted for in Hawaii is in dispute. On Friday, they said there were nearly 400 people missing. The governor of Hawaii says it's going to be less than 100 people unaccounted for. The numbers are all over the place. It doesn't seem like so chaotic a situation that you would not be able to determine how many people are missing or how many people are dead. I, I understand you. it may be a while before you know these ashes belong to this person or these are the remains of this person. I understand that. But like with 9-11, which was a far more chaotic situation, 
um, and unprecedented in its in, in the in the nature of it, the the dimension of it. Um, the, the the death toll was established within about I would say a week, and then it was just a question of will we find all the missing? There is a lack of specificity about Maui that I can't figure out. And again, my mind goes to the worst places, like, well, why are they being so cavalier about this? And Ron DeSantis was actually asked about this, um, and I thought gave a very good answer. He, he was asked about the aid that uh, Florida is getting, and he raised the question of how Maui is being talked about and is being covered. Cut number six. Do you trust the federal government to help uh, seeing what happened in, in Hawaii just a few weeks ago in East Palestine a few months ago? So the question is, is um, what about the, the federal government in light of uh, what, what happened in, in Maui? Look, I think the Maui is a total catastrophe, what happened there. And I don't think we have all the answers to that. I think we should have all the answers to that. It's interesting how incurious uh, our corporate media is about what happened in Maui. I mean, I don't see them uh, interviewing parents who can't find their kids, but we know there's a lot of people missing. So, so that was a total uh, a disaster, uh, really, really heartbreaking to, to hear some of the stories, even though they're not being publicized. I think this situation is much different. I think that the state of Florida, uh, we, we prepare for this stuff. We were prepared. We responded, and really what the federal government's role is, is just turning on programs that Congress has enacted over many, many years. And so it's basically serving as a checkbook uh, to get people reimbursed for debris cleanup, to give people individual assistance. And so in that sense, uh, I think that that has been turned on. I anticipate that that will go. Right, so now he's talking about about uh, Florida. But, um, yeah, I, I, he's saying, why aren't you guys covering this? So let me just give you my thoughts, and, and, and these are just opinions. I, I mean, I, I don't have like a, a fully uh, documented, uh, proven brief here, but basically the way politics has always worked in my lifetime has been that politicians really don't care about us, except that they want our votes and our tax dollars. Now, you can say, wait a minute, that's very cynical, Jack. Some of them care. Okay, well, maybe a few of them care. Maybe some of them care. Maybe the ones you like care. But, I mean, mostly we exist for our votes and our taxes. And the only thing we have on our side of the ledger, because we can't voluntarily withhold our taxes, and we got to vote for somebody if we want to vote, right? I mean, you can always opt for not voting, but if you're going to vote, you got to vote for one of the available people. The thing we've always had on our side is the requirement that politicians act like they care. So the way this thing works is, no matter how nasty, cruel, cold-hearted, corrupt, greedy you might be, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, man, woman, you have to perform the rituals the American people expect that show that you care. And if you don't, two things happen. People call you out, and the media amplify the calls of the people. And that is a system 
that has worked more or less until now. I think what we're seeing right now is the corporate media bodyguarding Joe Biden's presidency. They are, if you will, the information equivalent of the Secret Service. They go ahead of him. They stay around him. They check everything uh, in his environment. They make sure he is protected from angry people, hard questions, uh, raw emotion. So I think that's why he doesn't go to Palestine at all. I think that's why they're not paying uh, wall-to-wall coverage of Maui. Maui is the 9-11 for Hawaii, and they're not they're not getting that kind of coverage. And and a, a num- not just DeSantis, but a number of people have have marvelled at how these are Americans, and we're treating this like it's some country halfway around the world. Did you see where um, they have a bill to replenish? the federal funds for emergencies. It's called the Disaster Relief Fund. It's what DeSantis was just talking about. And Rick Scott, one of the senators from Florida, said, hey, let's replenish that fund. And a Democratic senator, Tammy Duckworth of Illinois, I think she's from Illinois, or Wisconsin, I don't know, one of those two. Tammy Duckworth, Democrat, says she's going to block replenishing the aid to the fund that's helping Maui and Florida unless Republicans agree to 23 uh, billion more for Ukraine. She says it's important to include Ukraine funding. Republicans are holding it up. So we're going to hold up funding the disaster relief fund until Republicans agree to the 23 billion. And of course, there's no, no matter how you feel about the war in Ukraine, and no matter what you think we should or should not be doing about it, um, there is no reason to connect those two. There is no link between aid to a foreign country and a bill funding disaster relief for suffering uh, Americans. Um, and so this will force senators and Congress critters into the choice where if they want to vote to help Americans, they also have to vote to fund Ukraine. We don't have a good system if politicians can get away with this stuff. And the only way our system has ever worked is if they had to perform as if we mattered to them. Now, you should never start to think that you really do. This isn't love, you know. But it works as long as they have to play that game. And it's uncharted territory. I don't really know how this is going to work, how this is going to look if they don't. And the reason the Biden administration right now doesn't have to play that game is because of the bodyguarding of corporate media. So when you hear people say, I don't think anyone in Washington cares. I don't think any, anyone in Washington is, is listening to us. What they're really saying is, I don't think the people in Washington are pretending they do or going through the motions of it anymore, which is really what we want. If, if we're honest, we, we can only really expect that they will perform the right way. We can't control what's in their hearts or souls or if they even have souls. Uh, what do you think about that? 210 55. We're going to kick that around a little bit. We got a new JR poll. We've got uh, there's a new survey out about the uh, 2024 election that people are reacting to in a really interesting way. A lot of people are very surprised by it, and I'll tell you who they are and, and what surprises them, and we'll talk about that. Uh, this is a uh, survey from the uh, I think this is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, yeah, Wall Street Journal. 
Uh, Donald Trump has expanded his dominating lead for the Republican presidential nomination. A new Wall Street Journal poll shows what was once a two-man race for the nomination has collapsed. Uh, the president, uh, former president is now the top choice of 59% of Republican primary voters. He's gone up 11 percentage points since the beginning of the summer. His lead over his top rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has nearly doubled to 46 percentage points. At 13%, DeSantis is barely ahead of the rest of the field, none of whom has broken out into double digits. Um, they also found that um, despite the indictments of Trump, which a majority of the Republicans in the poll said were politically motivated and without merit, um, Trump is about dead even with President Biden among voters overall in a hypothetical rematch of the 2020 election. There's low interest among voters for third-party candidates. In the Wall Street Journal poll, Donald Trump had 40%, President Biden had 39%, the Green and Libertarian candidates drew a combined 3%, and everybody else was undecided. So do you believe this is a close matchup? between these two and i know i know i know it's a long way off a lot of things are going to happen we you know, you don't have to you don't have to give me all the boilerplate uh, qualifications i know just just wondering if you think this is close are you surprised that this is close they were talking about it on abc's this week and george stephanopoulos cited this survey and he said he was shocked or stunned i guess was the word he used that Trump could be close to Biden, that it could be close. So the people that analyze this stuff and are professionals, I mean, Stephanopoulos, before he got on ABC, was a, was a Clintonista, right? Um, they're stunned that it's close. They don't feel like it should be close. And, and in saying that, they're saying two things. They're saying that people should uh, forget about Trump's term of office and only focus on the accusation, uh, accusations against him, right, which people aren't doing. They're also saying, Joe Biden's doing fine. You know, I'm not an expert, and I'm not an analyst, and I couldn't do Stephanopoulos' job, but I wouldn't think that when you combine the fact that Trump had three really good years, and by that I mean the economy was strong, and promises were kept. And when you look at the intense unhappiness of Americans these last couple of years, when you look at all the indicators pointing the wrong way, there isn't a single survey that's healthy-looking under Joe Biden's presidency on any issue. And on top of that, people get the sense that the country isn't like fighting through something. This isn't like the Great Depression or a world war where you could say hey, times are tough all over. Our decline is chosen. We've opted for it. We're following policies that make things more expensive, that make life harder, that make us more divided, that make our kids' uh, education inferior to that being given around the world. These people are really out of touch. They really don't get how unhappy these voters in this Wall Street Journal survey are. Now, it doesn't mean that Trump will win, but they shouldn't be surprised that he could. 
We can talk about that. I want to know what you think. It took effect on the 1st. It's tied up with lawsuits uh, from cities, including San Antonio. Uh, it was called, while it was moving through the legislature, the Death Star Bill. Uh, and it's, uh, I guess, the Darth Vader of the Death Star Bill is State Representative Dustin Burroughs uh, out of the Lubbock area. He's on our KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners newsmaker line. I'm hoping you're not going to do the Darth Vader voice, but I'll leave that up to I'll leave that up to you. But Representative Burroughs, good afternoon. Thanks for coming on, Jack. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it very much. Um, the uh, reaction to this, for, you know, Texas is a red state with blue cities, as you know. Uh, the reaction to this from the cities is that you are trying to strip them of uh, local autonomy and uh, making local decisions. Um, what were you trying to do? What does this this uh, piece of legislation set out to do? Well, let's, let's be clear. For, you know, 100 years, the state has been primarily the regulator of business. We have regulatory agencies, bodies, industry groups, and we come up and we debate all things from, you know, labor for all businesses to looking at the agricultural industry, insurance, you name it. And we have some shared duties with the federal government. Cities have never been in that space before. You know, when you think about what our cities do, they do really important things like take care of police, fire, streets, things of that nature. What has happened over the last, you know, several years is there are some activist groups, uh, think labor unions, think environmentalists, think animal rights activists that have gone to the state capitol and they can't get their agenda through because Texas is red. And so what they've done is they've now gone to city councils and said, hey, why don't you all pass our ordinances there because the state of Texas won't do it. Some of them sound good or feel good, but they're getting them done. And Texas is essentially saying, no, that's not the traditional roles of cities. And by the way, it's hurting our small businesses that they do not need to have this double regulation because that's real cost to them in their bottom line. So our bill is being celebrated by small business and industry group as a bill that's going to free up their capital and ability to expand and give raises and do things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, was there a specific um, issue and did the dispute between the cities and the state on COVID have anything to do with it? So there are several of them that we've actually seen. You know, we've seen trying to do paid sick leave at the city ordinance level. We've seen uh, trying to raise minimum wages at the city level. We've seen this idea of predictive scheduling, which would be a nightmare for regulatory compliance for our businesses. Some of it was COVID. You're right, Jack. I mean, we've seen where, you know, evictions have always been kind of a state statute for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And now some cities went and said that, you know, if you're a private, you know, landlord, that we're going to make sure that if uh, somebody can't be evicted for 90 days, well, you know, not everybody is a, you know, multi-million apart, uh, apartment owner. Some of these are just retirement homes. And the idea of having somebody, you know, not pay rent for 90 days, they can't continue to do that. And cities put that in place. And so this bill would restore rightfully the lanes that both the city and the county, uh, state run in. So, um, both sides are claiming that, you know, you're, you're claiming and mayors like Houston and San Antonio are claiming that you've got the Texas Constitution on your side. Uh, explain that to me. I mean, help, help us understand this. Yeah, the Texas Constitution, and look, I, I feel like 99.9% .9 certain we will prevail when we get to the Texas Supreme Court. But the Constitution does set up a framework that we said, look, 
you know, if you're a city over a certain population and you want to be home rule, um, as long you can do whatever you want as long as it's not inconsistent. Those are the words, inconsistent with the laws of the state of Texas. We're going to let you, you know, go forward. Well, we never granted them, you know, complete ability to trump what we, you know, do. So the fact that we have passed this means that these bills or these ordinances are inconsistent. We will prevail. And it's really a tragedy that, you know, we have this one justice down in Travis County. And, 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 and look, I mean, it, the fix was in from the beginning and just really disappointed because I'm a lawyer by trade on the other side. And I still have this great idea that we have courts that, you know, have blind justice. And unfortunately, this ruling just uh, shows that it wasn't there. But we will eventually prevail. And the Constitution is just as clear as can be and unambiguous, in my opinion. Mm. Um. You know, when I was reading the articles about this, I kept thinking this kind of uh, tension or collision is inevitable in a situation where you have these blue islands in the middle of a red state. I mean, you, you mentioned in this conversation they've tried to go to the legislature and had little success, um, just as conservatives uh, typically have little to no success when they go to a city council meeting uh, in these in these blue cities. I mean, this looks like a standoff without end. Well, you know, look, I, I, I've seen what has happened to these, you know, West Coast cities. Think the dumpster fires that Portland and Seattle have become. They're just somewhat lawless. And we're not going to let our major metropolitan areas become like that in Texas. I mean, just period, the end. And I mean, that, that's just Texas does not deserve to have our major cities that we're so proud of, you know, suffer that fate. But, you know, truly, this was a bill that, you know, small business rallied behind. And you look at all the different trade groups, I mean, that are, you know, out there, they supported this, whether it was the National Federation of Independent Business, the Texas Restaurant Association, Apartment Association, Chambers of Commerce, they rallied behind this because they know the real cost you know, that this is to business. And I also point out, this was a bipartisan bill. I had people who voted and signed on and joint authors who were, you know, Democrats who supported this because they understand that small business is the backbone and economic engine of Texas, and they want to see it thrive and grow. And so to me, this was just pro-business and anti-business where this thing collided. Yeah. Is there uh, any truth to the allegation that there will be a flurry of lawsuits people can bring uh, against city ordinances that they think are in violation of your law? And, and if that happens, the cities are saying, you know, it's going to break us. Oh, I, I don't see a flurry. I mean, there's certainly some ordinances that need to be off the books. The real beauty of this is actually the things that they haven't even thought of that or that are coming from the West Coast that we need to basically stop. But this is where I think that the hypocrisy knows no bounds. The small businesses, they don't have a team of in-house lawyers. They don't have, you know, people to basically look at all of these things. And so these cities who are, you know, saying that they don't like the uncertainty or unpredictability of, you know, the Texas Regulatory Consistency Act, or otherwise known as the Death Star Bill, uh, that they like to call it, um, the small businesses are the ones who don't have that same, you know, features, and they, they want that same certainty and predictability. And so, you know, truthfully, that's that's what I really look at is they're the ones who benefit from this, and they're entrepreneurs, and they're out there starting business, and we should be celebrating them. When I was looking at the reactions, uh, it, it occurred to me that you really did strike a nerve here. I mean, it, it's pretty clear, and I, I can speak mainly for San Antonio, but it's pretty clear that the cities in this state are governed by people whose model is Los Angeles, 
Seattle, Portland, Chicago. And and the only thing holding them back, if anything, is is just the political realities of the of the math. But um, you, you obviously w- calling it the Death Star bill. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty draconian. I mean, you can't go you can't go much further than that. Um, so I guess you 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 read them right when you said uh, a minute ago that you were trying to preempt plans you believe they have. Yeah. And, and look, you know, I mean, to me, you know, for these small businesses, these ordinances are sometimes passed in the dead of night. That's the Death Star. I mean, that's what's really coming after it. But look, you know, for all the mayors who are publicly decrying this because maybe that's, you know, politically expedient for them and they can get the headlines on it. I've had several mayors and city council members who have thanked me, some publicly, many of them privately, because when these activist groups, you know, think again, environmentalists and labor unions, you know, come to them, they're not really interested in basically doing their bidding, but they, it's hard for them because they're elected to tell them no, especially in these more blue cities. But now they have a reason to be able to say, no, 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 I'm sorry, we're going to focus on police and fire. So, you know, for all of the people who are out there making the noise so publicly and loudly, there's also a lot privately or happy that we've taken this off their plate. Say Representative Dustin Burroughs. Representative, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. Hope we can talk to you again. Thank you. Appreciate it as well. All right. 446 on 550 and 1071 KTSA, Jack Riccardi. We can talk about that. And um, I don't know. I, I, I think it's funny that people like George Stephanopoulos and some other media people uh, are looking at that Wall Street Journal report saying, how can it be close? How can Biden and Trump be close? Um, do you think the 2024 election will be close? Or are you surprised that it appears to be right now? And um, I don't know. How do you read this? This was a huge hit uh, for Smash Mouth, which was so big, uh, like in the tail end of the 90s and the beginning of the 2000s. Uh, this song, they covered uh, I'm a Believer, the Neil Diamond uh, song, and uh, they were on the Shrek soundtrack. And um, we learned uh, yesterday that their lead singer, very young, Steve Harwell, passed away at the age of 56. He had been in hospice care and uh, died in Boise, Idaho. So uh, I hate that expression that uh, celebrity deaths come in threes, but we, in very short order, we lost uh, the lead singer of Smash Mouth. We lost Jimmy Buffett, uh, and we lost Gary Wright. Uh, the 70s rock star Gary Wright. So anyway, we'll be hearing them as we go along here this afternoon, and I hope we'll be hearing you. 210-599-5555. Um, I, I don't have uh, a whole lot of trouble understanding wh- why people would vote for Donald Trump. I'm actually having a harder time understanding why people would vote for Joe Biden. Like, if you want to know the truth, when I look at the numbers and it's like 46 to 46 or 40 to 39, I want to know how does Biden get to 46? Or 39. I mean, I'm serious, because even even allowing for people voting out of habit and or party loyalty, people are miserable. Um, and he is not performing, as we were talking about earlier, he's not the performative, empathizing, hey, I'm as mad as you are about this. 
In fact, his messaging is always that things are fine, and your problem, okay, as you go through your day, your problem is white male Trump supporters. So you're trying to pay your bills. You're wondering what the heck's being taught to your kids. Uh, you're contemplating a future where you'll be driving around in a $90,000 electric cube. Uh, and you're supposed to think that, that what's plaguing you are uh, white dudes that, that vote for Trump. I just don't know how you sell that to people. So, like, I understand the 40-40 or we're a 40-40 country or we're a 45-45 country in terms of party loyalty and party uh, habit voting or whatever, but but these are extraordinary times. This guy's extraordinarily, uniquely bad at this. And like I said, it's not that we've always thought every president cared, but if you think back, th- you could tell they were at least putting out the, the effort. You know, they were... They were putting on the act. And I don't just mean showing up at disasters. I mean, you're supposed to sound like you're rooting for the little guy. And Joe Biden only knows how to tell stories about himself and his family, most of which are not true. Everything relates back to either his deceased son, his house that burned down, his Corvette that almost burned down. I mean, it's just, it's it's incredible to me that they're tied, not because of all the stuff that's been thrown at Trump, but because of of Biden. And so I believe that everyone is predicting a close election, and I'm not qualified to say they're all wrong. I just don't see how they can be. You know, I don't see... I don't see I, now, I'm, uh, of course, the, the asterisk here is rigging and stuff like that, but if we're just talking for a moment, and let's just talk for a moment about, like, how people, when they go out to vote, are actually going to vote, I guess the expectation of people like George Stephanopoulos is that they are either going to vote for Joe Biden, which, again, he's given them no reason to do, none, or they're going to vote against Donald Trump. And the reason they're going to vote against Donald Trump is because he's been indicted and he's been accused of a lot of things. I could see a lot of people saying, okay, yeah, I know all that, but I just want, I want 2017, 2018, 2019. I want those back. What do you think about that? Are, uh, are Trump and Biden really tied? Every poll says they are. The newest one, the Wall Street Journal poll, which has Trump further and further ahead of the other Republicans. Uh, says they are. Um, is that surprising? It, it apparently is shocking to some commentators. Um, and we can make jokes about they live in a bubble and all that stuff. Uh, but I do think that's part of it. I, I just, I think that they are trying so hard to convince you that they the Democrats, the Democrat media, are trying to save democracy. And Trump is the, is, is the danger. Trump is the thing that you should be losing sleep over. But in people's real worlds, in the actual lives we live, when we're not rich and we're south of Richmond, right, we, we know that's not true. We know that our day-to-day has been turned upside down. 
not by Trump, not by anything he is alleged to have done. We are the victims of actual crimes. Inflation is, is robbery. I mean, it steals from you. And when, poli- when government policies drive inflation, which they always do, you're being stolen from. You're being pillaged. When government policies drive up the cost of energy in what should be an energy-rich, energy-independent country and state, when politicians keep trying to or threatening to take away from you all the things in your life that work, that either save you labor, that make you more comfortable, or in the case of guns, that make you safe or make you feel safe, when they keep trying to take stuff that works, you're supposed to think that they are the threat. I'm sorry, you're supposed to think that Trump is the threat, but you know that they are. You know that they are. So I'm not really too sure I believe that Biden has the support that these polls indicate he has. Now, I I am aware of how people vote habitually, and there's still some maybe party loyalty, although wouldn't you think party loyalty would be weakening um, as time goes on because the things that used to strengthen party loyalty were that the parties were consistently about something. And the Democrats all of a sudden don't look like a party that is consistently for its own base. They are doing things that are bad for huge portions of their own base. Uh, Bill Maher, who's obviously a big-time liberal and Democrat, said some stuff on his show the other day about why don't we talk more about um, all the murders happening in Chicago? Why isn't there more reporting on black lives taken by black lives? And you think about how the Democratic Party used to be able to presume the black vote, it was because they were presumed to be delivering for those communities, and they're not. And people are figuring that out. The border, their border policy used to be about security and protecting blue-collar jobs and union jobs. They're not that anymore. And if they think they're pandering for Hispanic votes with their border policies, every survey I've seen indicates that Hispanic voters may be even more upset and irate about the border than white voters. So you're not... It's not clear to me that his whole ruse is working. And I think that's why there is so much protection of him by the media who cover him. I mean, there's a lot of stories to tell here. You know, and while you you can certainly report about the accusations against Trump, um, Biden doesn't look clean by comparison. Biden looks like he is corrupt in a different way. If people think that Trump was trying to stay in office or change the outcome of the election, the the appearance of Joe Biden is that he treated his government service and government titles like they were a hustle or a racket. And they're doing some pretty dramatic cleanup on him when there is a heck of a story to tell.
So one guy looks like he was disputing the election. The other guy looks like he's stealing. I could be wrong, but I don't think those are comparable or six of one, half dozen of the other. I know people say, well, I'm really, I'm really down on both parties. I agree with you. And I'm not making the pitch for either party or either candidate. But it should not surprise you if people are rejecting the idea that the greatest burden around their neck, the greatest threat facing them, the thing they should be lying awake at night worrying about is Donald Trump. Not when Joe Biden continues to perform uh, the way that he is. Now, I know it's all about turning out the vote and getting out the vote, and we've talked the last couple of weeks about how Democrats have gotten very efficient at that and Republicans don't seem to care about it. And it makes people mad when I say that, but prove me wrong, and I'll gladly amend what I've said. I don't think they have a, a plan or a strategy or even an awareness for why early voting is important. I'm glad that Glenn Youngkin is talking about it, but he's one guy. And um, they don't seem to get the early voting part. They don't seem to get the vote harvesting, college ballots, mail-in ballots. So they've not only failed to change the rules back to pre-2020, but they don't seem to be built, the Republicans I'm talking about, they don't seem to be built for competing on the battlefield that the Democrats have established for 2024. Does that make sense? Uh, So I, I get that. And that is keeping, to me, that's keeping Biden in this race. And when you see polls that say it's close, it's close, they're keeping it close, meaning they're keeping him, you know, competitive, when logic would say he he shouldn't be. And it's interesting because we used to think that people voted for the candidate they preferred or the promises they preferred or the image of a leader right like in the 1960 election which was before my time there were a lot of surveys when they would ask people people would say well richard nixon seems better prepared and more experienced and he gives smart answers but we really like jack kennedy and he just looks like a leader and he just he's he's just easy on the eyes and sounds good and and i'm not taking anything away from president kennedy but i mean we used to think that those were the, 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 the drivers, but what if people just think, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying about Trump, and I get this, this, that, and the other, and he's rough around the edges, but I just really want 2018 and 2019 back, and I, I'm, not, I'm not pining for something that's so long ago it sounds crazy. That was only a few years ago. All this stuff that's dysfunctional wasn't that way. And I think we're close enough to that, you might be thinking, that we could get back to that. He seems to be the one to do that. Singer and songwriter Gary Wright was 80 years old. We learned of his passing yesterday. Big hit Dreamweaver. Um, really one of the biggest hits of the 70s. Uh, also a great song, Love is Alive, that was covered by Shaka Khan some years later. He had been uh, suffering from uh, Parkinson's and dementia uh, in recent years. Um, 
and so had not toured or performed live in in a number of years. But uh, when he was last performing live, uh, he was out on the road with Ringo Starr's band. And um, from what I've read and heard, would get this big reaction from people because it wasn't like everybody knew the name. But if you were alive and if you were of a certain age, you 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 just you just hear a few bars of Dreamweaver. And it, it has memories. You remember it being in movies. You remember hearing it at various times in your life or singing along in the car. He had an amazing voice. Um, getting a lot of tributes from other people in the music business um, for his voice uh, and for his uh, songwriting uh, as well. So Gary Wright, Dreamweaver. 210-599-5555. I was reading about a supermarket in Washington, D.C., Giant. And they have announced that their store on the southeast, in the southeast part of D.C., will no longer carry name brands like Tide, Advil, Colgate, and many others. They've just taken them off the shelves because that's what's being stolen. Now, this is a different story than we've talked about, like on the West Coast, stores like Walgreens and Target where they're, Putting stuff behind glass, you've got to ask a clerk to go get you something. This store is just not going to have stuff that people were stealing so rampantly. They're also putting cameras and armed guards, and they're making everybody show the receipts on the way out. I, you know, the question has to be, when we see this stuff happening, do we are we supposed to just shrug our shoulders and go, eh, well, you know, times change. This isn't like skinny ties and wide ties where you don't know why, but stuff just comes in and goes out of fashion, right? You look at stuff like this, and there's so many things like this. And unless you're just just sort of worn out and defeated, you can't help but wonder, well, okay, why is this happening? How did we get here? And I'm thinking if people are, are doing that thinking... I don't really see how they don't connect that with Joe Biden and the Democratic Party as it currently exists. And again, the Democratic Party of 30 years ago wouldn't have done this. And that may be the party people still think they're voting for. But they were different on the border. They were different on crime. They were different on a lot of things. This is where they are now. and, and, And if you're okay living like this... You know, just I'll have to see what they have at the store. (laughs) Hopefully they'll have what I want. If not, oh, well. I mean, if you're okay living like that, then put them back in. I don't think that many people are. 210-599-5555. Chad is on the Jack Riccardi Show. Chad, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm outstanding. I'm on the right side of the daisy, so today's a good day. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so a couple of things, right? First of all, uh, you know, what you were just talking about in terms of these individuals that are stealing everything left and right, why is that? There's absolutely no consequences for their actions. These liberal DAs in all of these major cities are allowing these individuals to steal left and right with no consequence. 
What what happens? They get a slap on the wrist and they're out the exact same day. I mean, look at New York City. What an entirely just horrible S show that is, right? These guys are stealing left and right, and what do they do? They get a little slap on the wrist and they're out the same day. I mean, these cops are out, they're, they're out of their minds with regards to trying to keep these people in line. It's horrible. Mm-hmm. We used to have a moralistic society where this is right, this is wrong. That line has been so blurred that it's nothing but gray area now. So well, explain really to me right, how, if we're, really li- if we're living like this, Chad, and we're seeing all this, explain to me how we could have a close election. We can't have a close election. And I'll tell you this, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because these polls, if we've learned anything from 2016, we understand that these polls are a- an absolute farce. And they're, they're put out there by the individuals who want to install somebody because they feel like, well, this is the person that's actually going to give back to me and going to kick back to me. I mean, look at the, the Biden crime family. The only reason why that guy was installed as the president, because we don't have free and fair elections, is because he's making other people rich. Hence, Ukraine. Okay? Ukraine is nothing more than a money laundering scheme. That's all it is. And that's but I mean, when you when you I, I agree with you about the polls, Chad. But but let, just answer me this. Answer me this. Yeah. Um, even when you have the Wall Street Journal or Fox News, who are not pro Biden entities, their polls show that it's close too. Is it is it that people haven't yet figured out where to point the finger for all the stuff that they hate? Is it that they still aren't sure Trump will even be out of prison next year? Is it that? Uh, are people still voting like habitually for the party they always used to vote for, even though the Democratic Party isn't that party anymore? I mean, what is it? I think, you know what, you, you bring up a great point, and H.L. Mencken said it best, right? Nobody ever went broke by betting on the stupidity of the American people, okay? So we have this, this giant mechanism in place, i.e. the media, that pushes a narrative that these individuals who they have five-second memories like Goldfish, TikTok, and everything else, and they don't know how to research and look into things for themselves. We, we have a lack of education. We have a lack of awareness. But here's the difference. Going forward, I think there's more people who have been hit in the wallet and mm-hmm. have seen their checks diminished mm-hmm. okay, over the last two years that it doesn't matter what the independents, where they're at or where they're not at, okay, because, hell, I mean, when I take home my check at the end of the month and I'm spending – Fifty percent more in gas. I'm spending eighty percent more in groceries. I'm spending eighty percent or one hundred twenty percent more on my electricity and all this other kind of stuff. Right. That's the determining factor. Just like what happened with Carter at the end of Carter's term with Reagan in the eighties, right? It's the economy, stupid. That's yeah. what yeah. they said because okay. you know what? My dollar doesn't go as far as it did before. Yeah. So Chad says it's gonna it's gonna take the the hit in the wall, and I, I think he's right. Chad, thanks for the call. Um, I, I think that is part of it. Uh, I think that is gonna unprogram or deprogram a lot of stuff that's being programmed. Uh, but I also think it's just this kind of foolish idea that you won't hire Trump because we've said a bunch of bad stuff about him. Um, you're gonna hire the guy that. When he was running things, and and, and I know I'm grossly oversimplifying this, like presidents do everything, but I mean, you're going to hire the guy that when he was running things, you were doing well. So it isn't a hypothetical person running against Joe Biden. It isn't 
I can do better, we can do better. It's we were doing better. We did do better. You remember that. Uh, Even very young voters can remember 2018. 210-599-5555 or jack at ktsa.com. So um, COVID, a friend of mine, a couple of friends of mine have it right now. Uh, There are more cases. Um, A listener to our show who's a truck driver said he was just uh, in Atlanta today. And for the first time in two and a half years, he was asked to put a mask on. You're seeing more coverage of it in the news. We seem to be headed toward, it feels like we're headed toward something with COVID. It could be this deal Biden has to mandate a vaccine nationwide. It could be a, a new panic. It could. Be, there's like three or four or five school districts around the country that have already uh, sent the kids home for distance learning. Yes, that's true. So where are we going with that? Let's see right here what we have on the Jack chat line. Let's check that out. Hey, Jack, this is Alan from Spring Branch. Calling back today when you talked about uh, if we think the election will be close between Biden and Trump. I think every election is going to be close from here on out because I think these two parties are just polarizing. I think... uh, you know, like 90, I don't think there's a lot of independence anymore, a lot of independent thinkers. I just think everybody's party lines these days, and, you know, people are just brought up to be a Republican. You hate everything Democrats say. If you're a Democrat, you hate everything the Republicans say. And I don't know if the media drives that, but it's like there's no one can even come in and say, oh, there's one good thing that the Democrats did. And I really think that's just back to this two-party system. I think it's just the root of all evil. If we had three good, strong parties where you could have some people that kind of cross the boundaries, I just think it would make a world of difference. Hmm. I don't know, um, Alan. I mean, for one thing, I don't, I don't know if I agree that we're bringing people up today r- rigidly with party. We, we are definitely teaching a lot of ideology in school, whereas we used to teach civics. We used to, we used to equip you to figure out politics and now we're kind of programming for politics so that part i would agree with i don't i don't i don't think i know anybody that's that's saying i'm raising uh democrats or i'm raising republicans but i do think the schools are are programming now the other thing you said about people not being independent um i'm gonna have to disagree with that too because the whole reason trump won in 2016 is because people in places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, Ohio, uh, Michigan, broke their pattern. And it was things were not as extreme as they are now. And Hillary Clinton, for all her faults, and you know I'm not a fan, was not running on the kind of extremism, defeatism, everything you have in your life, you should feel guilty about that they are that they are put the Democrats are, are proclaiming now. They are coming after the stuff in your life that works and promising you you will have less and you will have to like it. You won't even be able to talk about it or complain about it. So I, I don't I, I think the twenty sixteen election disproves the idea that people never get out of their lane. I agree that people have lanes. 
But I think in extraordinary circumstances, they get out of their lanes. Are these not extraordinary circumstances? We can't. We don't have. We don't have your brand of toothpaste at the store because too many people are stealing it. Oh, okay. I don't think people are going to be. I don't think people are going to be cool with that. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five is our number. Oh, let's grab one more before we go on to live calls. One more on the Jack chat. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name's Mike. I live in Augusta, Georgia. Been listening to you for a long time. On um, Wednesday, you were talking about two things I wanted to make comment about. First thing was the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, I'm retired military, and that just made me sick to my stomach how our country's leadership pulled out of Afghanistan, leaving billions of dollars worth of equipment there um, in such a hasty fashion uh, with seemingly no plan, uh, not to mention the deaths of uh, 13 servicemen. I I used to always encourage young people to join the military, but I, I don't do that anymore because I've lost faith in the Department of Defense and our Commander-in-Chief. The second thing was an RA at a university. Um, I was an RA at the University of Texas in 1979, and they paid me or uh, they gave me room and board for free and uh, a stipend of about $100 a month. So I thought I was doing great, um, <laughs> and I, I had no complaints. Uh, so that's my comment. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Yeah, that uh, school up in Massachusetts, the room and board is nine to twelve grand. They're getting they're getting free room and board, nine to twelve grand, and they're on strike because they think they should also be paid. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five to call into the show live, and Deborah is doing that right now. Deborah, welcome. Good afternoon. Jack, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I was I was listening to your show, and you had said, "Do I do we think that Trump and or the present election with Republicans and Democrats are going to be close?" Well, I hope not. But knowing what's all going on, it could be very well beat. You know. But my question is, and all the talk shows and and uh, trying to figure out. You know, this is not the government who I went to school with, learned about, lived with for, you know, 60 years. And my biggest question is, is we feel what is going on now in our everything, and we that are going with the flow and who does, they don't care and they're going to still vote for this kind of living that we're in, are they getting credit cards? They don't know. Are they paying bills? Deborah, you're kind of breaking yeah. up on us. We're losing your, we're losing your signal. Uh, can you kind of like, what's, what is your actual question? Oh, my, my, my question. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, my question no, it's just that I don't want to lose that, you before you get to whatever it is you were going to, the question you were going to ask. Oh, well, no, my question is, is that if the Republicans, and we're Republicans, I'm a Republican, and I'm feeling the hurt. I'm feeling oh. it with my patients. I'm a nurse. I'm feeling with my family, seeing the economy, seeing the medical, the way it's right. going. And right. are the Democrats, if they're going with the flow, are they not feeling this? You know, right. are we not seeing this? Right. Well, and I would say, yes, they are. I mean, I, I, I cannot imagine that there aren't people who are saying, um, I might have hated Trump 
I, I might have thought his voice was like nails on chalkboard, but I sure would like that economy right now, or I'd like that gasoline price right now, or I'd like that grocery bill you know, right now. And, and that's why I say I don't know if I believe that this is as close as they're telling. I'm not, I'm not trying to, say, be cocky or, or assume victory, but I, I don't know if I believe that this is that close. Because you're right. I mean, it doesn't matter how you voted. You pay the same price for gas as the people that voted the other way. Right. And another thing, too, Jack, is that this thing about letting the college students, you know, get a free ride, that's not fair. I've been, I've had student loans. I know people that have, professors and they had student loans, and they have to pay their monthly bill. And they, I think anybody that goes to school has to pay. Okay. Deborah, thank you. Appreciate it. Um, I, you know, again, I'm, this is way far out, and we're just, we're just having a conversation. I know a lot can change uh, and, and will change, and stuff's going to happen that we don't have any conception of right now. But um, I guess I, I would just want people to not feel uh, that the repetition of uh, sort of the, the – the, the drumbeat, that's the word I wanted, the, the drumbeat on Trump. Well, um, they've, they've, you know, they've, they've got him under all these indictments, and um, we're not even sure he'll be uh, eligible. We're going to keep him off the ballot in some states. Um, they're playing with fire because it's not like a typical election where the, the Democrats can say, hey, we're, we, we see what's going on, we feel it, we're with you. Here's our 10-point plan to make it better. They're not acknowledging the crime. They're not acknowledging the prices. They're not acknowledging Ukraine. They're not acknowledging Afghanistan. And they're saying stuff about it that's pretty callous. And that's borne out in the president chuckling about how he, he, he hasn't had time He's had time for 25 vacation days. He hasn't had time to go to East Palestine, and now he has to go. This is how he said, I have to go to Vietnam and and Asia. No, you don't. (laughs) And um, I I, I would think that, you know, if he was better at this, I'd be saying something different. But I would think people are going to start to get the idea that – Hey, whatever people expect me to do, whatever my family expects me to do, whatever my friends do or I think they do when they pull the curtain and vote, I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for things to get better. I don't have to tell anybody I did it, but I'm not voting for this. This is not okay. This is not normal. And the people in charge are are not acknowledging it. They are doubling down on it. They are talking like, hey, this is just the beginning. Prices will have to go much higher. There will have to be much more scarcity. They're not saying, hey, we'll never let those blackouts happen again. They're saying, we're planning on more of them. You better get used to it and eat crickets. All right, I'm going to play this for you because I don't think you'd believe it if I just told you about it. So this happened on CNN over the weekend. Um, Michael Smirkanish who's a radio guy in Philly, does a show on CNN. He had on Dr. Anthony Fauci, who may have retired from the federal government, but who has not retired from masks. He is still on the job. He is the masker-in-chief. And Smirkanish basically reads him the data 
on how masks don't work. Points out that the, what he's reading is one of many such findings. They don't, they didn't make a difference. Because we're, we're masking up again. You can see it all around you. I want you to listen to, first of all, it's pretty incredible that CNN would actually confront, you know, their idol. But then I want you to hear the word salad that comes out of Anthony Fauci. Take a listen to this. Cut number eight. Uh, Brett Stevens in The Times talked about Cochrane. Put that on the screen. The most rigorous and comprehensive analysis of scientific studies conducted on the efficacy of masks for reducing the spread of respiratory illness, including COVID-19, was published last month. Its conclusions, said Tom Jefferson, the Oxford epidemiologist who is the lead author, were unambiguous. There is just no evidence that they, masks, make any difference, he told the journalist Mayan Damasi, full stop. But wait, hold on. What about the N95 masks as opposed to the lower quality surgical or cloth masks? Makes no difference. None of it, he said. Well, what about the studies that initially persuaded policymakers to impose mask mandates? They were convinced by non-randomized studies, flawed observational studies. How do we get beyond that finding of that particular review? Yeah, but there are other studies, Michael, that show at an individual level for individual. When you're talking about the effect on the epidemic or the pandemic as a whole, the data are less strong. Um, I will say this. I will say this. Uh, This feels very deja vu to me. All of a sudden, he's being interviewed again, even though he's out of government. Is he really out of government, by the way? I don't even know. Like, he probably is still pulling the strings. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he has many willing ears in the Biden administration. Um, but, but I mean, it feels like we're heading towards something again. And, and hearing him say, we don't mandate masks, we don't mandate anything. No, of course you don't. But your guidance, your I hope people will wear masks again, is what the bureaucrats use to do their mandating. I I thought it was very interesting that Smirkanish says, how do we get past this data or this study? Like, you know, like the, the, the fact that we now have found that masks don't work, that's problematic. We need to get past that. No, we don't. That That is something we need to actually stay on. Like, these don't work. And it's funny. Lockdowns were worse than useless. School closures were a disaster. Masks did not work. And the vaccine did not prevent you from getting COVID. Why is it we have to get past these findings? Why are these inconvenient? It seems to me like we should say, wow, I'm glad we know all this. Right? Logically, you'd say, hey, this is a whole body of knowledge we didn't have in the spring of 2020. We won't do these things. We won't go down these roads again because they don't work. It's interesting that the, the question he puts to Fauci, I mean, I give him credit for reading the summation of the Cochrane study to him. That's, that's good. But it's interesting the, the way he asks him about it is, please get us around this so that we can, so that we can wear masks again, which we all really want to do. I saw a number that I can't wrap my head around, and I don't know. I'm not saying it. it I'm not saying it's not true. It just sounds so weird. And 
forgive me, I mean, I took the weekend off. I watched a lot of college football. I didn't do a lot of talk show stuff, but I did see this story. It says that 50% of the beef in America is consumed by 12% of the people. Doesn't that sound crazy? 50% of the beef in America, according to Nutrients Journal out of Tulane University, very reputable school, 50% of the beef, the steaks, the chops, all that in America, 12% of the people are eating it. And it's primarily men around my age. It's not me. It's not me. I mean, I, I'm i not a vegetarian. I was thinking about vegetarianism the other day. Um, I'm not a vegetarian, but I now eat so little red meat that it would be a breeze. To, to go. It would not take much to go in that direction. I'm not planning on it, but, uh, but it wouldn't take much. I just don't eat it anymore. I don't buy it. I seldom order it. I have to be in a place where I know it's going to be good, and I usually am not in that place, so... Um, they were studying beef consumption because uh, of the environment and people's health. So this was a this was an, a study that came at it from the standpoint that beef is problematic. So take that for what it's worth. But I, I just I can't believe <laughs> can't believe that's true. Who are these people? Right? I mean, are they just like eating it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Are they just like having steak with a side of steak? What would you like for your side, sir? I'll just have some more steak. Well, we have baked potato, green bean, corn. Well, I'll just I'll take some steak on the side. Anybody want an appetizer? Yes, I'd like a steak while I'm waiting for my steak. I mean, what what are these people doing? I kind of want to know. I kind of want to hang with them. Not, not like full time, but it sounds like it would be a good night. These sound like fun people. Does that sound possible to you? So 12% of us are eating half of all the beef in America. And then we're talking about COVID. And the pattern I see here is we have amassed a lot of data. So forget for a minute about what you thought at the time or your opinions. Just put those aside for a minute. The, the, the studies are in. The data are in. Uh, masks didn't work. Lockdowns didn't work. School closures didn't work. And the latter of the two not only didn't work, but the lockdowns were worse than useless. Okay, lockdowns and school closures were work were worse than useless, worse than ineffective. And the um, curve flattening and the fear of overwhelming the hospital systems came at a tremendous cost to people. Like we were talking about earlier with crime and the economy and prices, at some point you can't just look at this stuff as a Democrat or a Republican. At some point, on some level, you, you got to see this as a human being. There have to be people who are seeing what lockdowns and school closures did to their kids, even though at the time those people ardently supported those things. And the school closures were a disaster. There was a, John Hinderager wrote a piece at uh, 
Powerline blog, Kids Have Stopped Going to School. He writes, pretty much everyone now agrees that shutting down the schools, the COVID epidemic, at the demand of the teachers' union, was one of the most catastrophic policy decisions of modern times. What government did to our children for no good reason was a crime, he writes. And having skipped school for a year or more, courtesy of the unions, a great many kids never have gone back, at least on a consistent basis. He is based in Minnesota, so he was citing Minnesota numbers, but you can find these numbers all over the country. Schools have fewer children enrolled. And I want to, before you say what I know you're going to say, yes, um, homeschooling is growing, but homeschooling is not growing enough to explain the declining enrollment at the public schools. It'd be great if that was the answer. Full stop. We can move on. Terrific. But it's not. The reality is um, there are kids that are not being schooled, that are not going to school. Now, with all the things you hear about public schools, maybe you're like, good, Let's, let's not send them there. But if you care about people and what happens to them and how policies affect people in the real world, this is disastrous. You talk about, I mean, I remember when we used to argue about whether we were giving as good a math education as Sweden or Japan. Those were the good old days when we just had to worry about whether we were keeping up with these highly competitive countries. Now we don't know where the damn kids are. We can't account for them learning anything. And again, even when you extract or extrapolate for homeschool or, hey, my kid goes to the Catholic school, the states have that stuff. They have that data. It doesn't cover the number of kids. In Minnesota, it's uh, a 15% decline in three years. It doesn't cover that. One of the ways you know that these COVID policies were a disaster is that they are all being rebranded now. So, for example, Fauci in the interview on CNN is trying to say that masks are just for you. When you wear the mask, it's just for you. That's not what they said at the time. And, you know, with, like, um, the school closures, the new rebranding is that Democrats reopened schools. Democrats were the liberators of the, you know, um, imprisoned, oppressed school kids. It was Joe Biden that opened the schools. And Trump closed them. And Trump didn't have a plan to reopen them. And um, they're going to basic, they're not going to run on, we did a good job. They're going to run on, we did a different job than the one we actually did. So they're creating a, a parallel fictional America of of the last few years, in which they always knew these COVID measures were a terrible idea, they never did like them, and they were the ones who ended them. And they think they can get away for that with that because, obviously, after Joe Biden took office, COVID receded, and the pressure to lift mandates and lockdowns and school closures became greater than the the influence of, of holding them. 
that, that's really it in a nutshell. The country shrugged off a lot of this stuff, collectively, gradually, organically. It isn't like Biden, the Democrats, the teachers' unions uh, came in and rescued us from it. And they need you very badly to believe that, not only because there's an election next year, but because COVID cases are going up. And they're going to do something about that. I mean, we already know Biden wants a national vaccine. But first, in order to do something about it, they got to rebrand what happened and what they did. And I I think what, um, if the Republicans want a, want a good issue, to me, this is one of those uh, demographic busting issues. You can you can talk to people about their kids, and they forget uh, what party they voted for, and they forget whether they're left or right, and they forget whether they're white or black. When you talk to people about their kids, if they're any kind of parent, and, and I think most of us try our very best, they love their kids so damn much that they, they focus in like a pinprick of light on, on that one thing, the well-being and the future of their kid. And so what, what Biden did was not reopening the schools, but he did a, a, an enormous wealth transfer to school districts and indirectly to school unions, teachers' unions. So what the teachers' unions did was they held out for a big ransom. Remember they were on strike and they were doing performative dances and all that stuff? They came back when he paid them. And he paid them because they're his base. You want to know somebody that you can presume is a Biden voter without even knowing anything about them and be right like 90% of the time? Public school teacher. Don't take offense if you're the exception to that, but you know what I mean. You know I'm right. I don't want to be right, but I know I'm right. So the whole we opened the schools was a massive political, you know, chef's kiss to his base. Now, I don't know if we'll get away with it or not, but that's what's happening. And it feels like we're heading into uh, COVID 2.0. What do you think? Yeah, the thing about the the COVID response, first of all, I always like to make sure we're clear. COVID didn't do all this stuff. The COVID response did all this stuff. So COVID... If you caught COVID, COVID made you sick. But it was the it was the human response. It was the expert designed. It was the guided by models. It was the follow the science. I am the science, said Fauci. That um, gave us all this dysfunction. That gave us children that have fallen through the cracks. It used to be missing children were. They didn't, they didn't come home at night. They were on milk cartons. Now we have missing children that are missing from the education system. They're, they're just not showing up anywhere. They're not all being homeschooled, I have to tell you. We have the dysfunction and the damage to our economy, which also affects our society. I mean, every time you hear about somebody wigging out and doing something crazy, don't you wonder... Is this another example of somebody that was pushed over the edge by the isolation and the artificial uh, terror that was created during COVID? When for the first time in our history, 
We didn't have leaders reassuring us. We didn't have leaders saying, I'm, I'm, we're going to defend your way of life. We're not going to let anything take your liberty and your life away from you. For the first time, we had leaders who said, you have to give this stuff up. You need to be unhappy and alone in order to live. And it turns out that was no way to live. And these were, the, these were supposed to be the best and brightest people. But I'm sure you noticed during COVID that the people that seem to make the most sense, the people that seem to have the best handle, were store owners and truck drivers and factory workers and farmers and people that delivered Chinese food and people that kept doing what they did so that we could stay home for 14 days or whatever the hell it was. And that extends to the other debates we're having, so-called debates. It's not those people I just listed that want to chain themselves to traffic barriers or chain themselves to the doors of oil companies or throw tomato soup on paintings to save the planet or ban cars or gas stoves or dishwashers or air conditioners. All of this stuff that's supposed to be saving us is coming from our allegedly, you know, most intelligent 1%, the upper, the intellectual upper class, the, the intellectual 1%ers. And these are, the, these are the brains of our society. I was thinking about this uh, a few weeks ago when I went to see the movie Oppenheimer, which I highly recommend. It's a great movie. But obviously... The, the, the idea in Oppenheimer is we're going to get the best scientists. We're going to twist arms, persuade, whatever we got to do, tell them, we ever, tell them whatever we have to tell them to uh, beat our enemy to this weapon that will change the world. Because we can't let them have it. We have to be first. Civilization demands that, period. And the people depicted in that movie are essentially the 1940s version of the top brains we have today. And the top brains we have today seem like maniacs. <laughs> they, they seem like uh, they, they're scary. I don't mean scary smart or they use big words. I mean, their ideas about how we should live are terrifying. And even in Oppenheimer, when the goal was to get the A-bomb first and not let the Nazis have it and not have to invade Japan and be fighting into the 1950s, e even then, there was a lot of skepticism about these guys and doubts about them and doubts about their intentions and their loyalties and their motivations and so forth. But I don't know. I mean, I look today and I think, do we have people like that that would just see the cl with clarity, well, okay, this needs to be done. It doesn't matter whether I voted for the president or not. It doesn't matter, you know, what my intellectual proclivities are. This Obviously, this needs to be done. 
And we have been accustomed to thinking that when big problems need solving, we need big brains. And they were big brains at Los Alamos. So if you think about it, and other people have written about this, um, the worst ideas of the last hundred years have come from intellectuals. Communism, Nazism, socialism, eugenics, the um, climate tyranny that is depriving people of not only creature comforts, but just enough food to eat and water to drink. People that are telling you you should make do with less. These are all intellectual movements. None of this is, is coming from, you know, people with grease under their fingernails or who work with dirt or who operate heavy equipment or drive a truck. None of it is. The people that have screwed us up are supposed to be the smart people. And the people that are making the most sense are supposed to be the, and I hate to use this term, the blue-collar people. Um, so we used to trust people that were smart. I always use that example of uh, the, the sci-fi movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still. The alien comes to Earth, played by um, Michael Rennie, and he, he, he talks to this little boy, and he says, who, who's the most important man you know? And the little boy sends him to a professor, sends him to an intellectual. But um, we don't, we're not living in a time when those kinds of people merit that kind of uh, trust. So... I, that's why I think with COVID, we're entering what's going to be an interesting rebranding. The terminology is going to be different. The psychology that they come at you with is going to be different. It won't look like March and April of 2020. I mean, not only because Trump and Pence and Fauci and Burks are not there, but they, they know they got to dress this up differently. And we're about to, I think we're about to see what that's going to look like. One of the things I did over this weekend was uh, finish this fantastic book about B.B. King. I, I had never read a book about him. I don't know if there are any other books about him, but uh, a reporter uh, named Daniel Device, D-E, capital V-I-S-E, uh, wrote a book about a year or two ago called King of the Blues. It's a fascinating uh, story of B.B. King. I say this because I know a lot of you like that song and like hearing him on our show. So check that out, King of the Blues. John Steinbeck was a pretty good writer in his day. May have had to read him in school, right? John Steinbeck. Um, I came across this on X over the weekend. I think Britt Hume actually had this on his X feed. This is a letter from John Steinbeck to Marilyn Monroe. Who would have, who would have ever thought, like, how would they? Yeah, anyway, so April 28th, 1955, 
addressed to Miss Marilyn Monroe in the Waldorf Towers, New York City. I mean, I, I got to read this to you because it's just so it's so witty. It's so well written. Dear Marilyn, in my whole experience, I have never known anyone to ask for an autograph for himself. It is always for a child or an ancient aunt, which gets very tiresome, as you know better than I. It is therefore with a certain nausea that I tell you, I have a nephew-in-law who lives in Austin, Texas, whose name is John Atkinson. He has one foot in the door of puberty, but that is only one of his problems. You are the other. I know that you are not made of celestial ether, but he doesn't. A suggestion that you have normal functions would shock him deeply, and I'm not going to be the one to tell him. On a recent trip to Texas, my wife made the fatal error of telling John that I, John Steinbeck, had met you. He doesn't really believe it, but his respect for me has gone up even for lying about it. Now, I get asked all kinds of silly favors, so I have no hesitation in asking one of you. Would you send him, in my care, a picture of yourself, perhaps in a pensive girlish mood, inscribed to him by name and indicating that you are aware of his existence? He is already your slave. This would make him mine. <laughs> That's so good. If you will do this, I will send you a guest key to the ladies' entrance of Fort Knox, and furthermore, I will like you very much. Yours sincerely, John Steinbeck. Wow. Basically, that's an entire typed page to say, can I get an autograph for my nephew? That is true, though, right? When people ask for autographs, it does not that I would know from personal experience, but I mean, I've seen people go up to people. And it seems like 90% of the time, it's that third party, third person. I'm just, you know, so-and-so would really like your autograph. And, and I've noticed that, too, like at book signings, when authors do book signings. Is it really true that most of the time it's for someone else, or is that just our way of easing into it, maybe? I don't know. You think it's, um, I was just thinking about this, you, you think it's possible in some of his writings that he was thinking of her as a character in, in one hmm. of his uh, oh literature pieces maybe well it's it's i guess he knew her from what he says or he had met her um which i that in itself i didn't know uh but um it's kind of cool to me to think that they would just have this correspondence and i would love to know what happened the the the, the tweet did not complete the story like i don't know if he, if he got a response back from her if he got the picture maybe she never saw this letter so have you ever wondered what would happen if the publisher's clearinghouse people came to your house and you weren't at your house? I've wondered about this because the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes is pretty, you know, central to my future. Like, if I don't win it, that's going to be a very different kind of retirement for me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you shouldn't count on it, but let's just say I, I definitely have some plans for it. Is that okay? But what would happen if you weren't home? Recently, a man uh, in Alabama, Edwin Walker, was uh, to win a million dollars, but no one was home when the prize patrol pulled up. He was actually on his lunch break 
at work? Well, the answer is they waited. And um, according to the Publishers Clearinghouse people, um, it happens more and it, it, it happens more than you would think, um, because they never notify a winner in advance that the prize is coming. But they say, "Yeah, we'll wait," and we do wait. And um, apparently, with people working from home, they've lucked out on that a little bit more lately. But uh, it's good to know that if you're not home, you you could still win. Because I have wondered about that. Uh, here's a sex therapist, Olivia Bentley. She works out of Boise. And in a New York Post story last week, she revealed that one of the ways she's had success helping couples save their relationship is she sleeps with them. And before you're thinking like she is an overnight guest in their home, no, she means she sleeps with them. She says... um, Sleeping with married couples is an attempt to help them tap into their sexual energy and fix their relationships. I have to say, I would think that could have some pretty serious side effects. Like, you know, the, you know, the, the pharma commercials where they list like 40 seconds worth of potential side effects. And you're not at the end of the commercial. You're not really sure. Do I do I want to be on that drug or? Gosh, maybe I should just take my chances the way I am now. She says that um, she makes sure she shows equal amounts of physical and emotional affection toward the wife and the husband, adding that she believes both feel very comfortable with her. She sounds like she's running a racket. (laughs) Sounds like she's just put a new name on a very old idea. I think I'd like to see Olivia Bentley's professional credentials, if you know what I mean. Because that does not sound, I don't know, that sounds like it might violate a guideline or two or Hippocratic Oath or something. Yeah, okay. So, um, I guess the good news is uh, she has evening appointments. So if that's a concern. And all so I'm probably the only one that feels this way, but that actually is my favorite Jimmy Buffett song. And, and if that had been the, if he'd only had like that one hit come Monday, I think that would have been a great uh, song to be remembered by. It just has a, a great feel and sound to it. Um, as you know, Jimmy Buffett's uh, past. We're going to remember him here in just a minute. Uh, first, on the JR poll powered by River City Oral Surgery, will the 2024 election be close? Well, our poll is not close. 62% say yes, it will, Riccardi. And 38% say no. Uh, new JR poll when we go live tomorrow at 4, or you can find it anytime at KTSA.com. I want to read you a little bit of the really great piece that uh, Bob Green wrote in the Wall Street Journal about Jimmy Buffett. He 
wrote a piece entitled Jimmy Buffett Departs with the Summer. And he wrote, there was always a sly grin, a sweetly sardonic message in just about everything Jimmy Buffett sang or did. So if he had to die, of course it would be at the beginning of Labor Day weekend, summer's end, the annual last breath of looseness and laughter. Except his own life and his work was based on the intoxicating premise that summers go on and on, that if you love them fiercely enough, you can will them never to stop. A gauzy and unreachable fantasy? Absolutely, for most men and women in the workaday world. But Buffett sensed and shared their yearning and turned it into a gloriously pleasurable touring career and a marketing concept that transformed his easy-to-embrace dream into a business empire. And songs like this one, I think, are not only hits on the radio, but they feel like a way of life as we leave it with you tonight. Jimmy Buffett and Margaritaville, rest in peace. Find that cheeseburger up there, Jimmy. Nibbling on sponge cake, watching the sun bake. All of those tubes covered with oil. Strumming my six strings. Front porcelain, smell of shrimp, they're beginning to boil. Wasted away again in Margarita searching for my love, sugar salt. Stepped on a 